0: But in Luke chapter 19, we're going to start in verse 1, and it simply starts just like this. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. There, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. Nothing really out of the ordinary here. Jesus is just passing through Jericho. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's not scheduled to make any stops or anything like that. He's just cutting through. Jericho's on your way to Jerusalem. And he meets a guy named Zacchaeus. That's not even all that unusual. Zacchaeus isn't like this incredibly uncommon name in in biblical times. Jesus probably encountered lots of guys named Zacchaeus. But then in these first two verses, we get this little curveball that tells us this story is not going to be like the rest says Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Not only was Zacchaeus a tax collector, he was the chief tax collector, which basically means he was the boss, which means he had all these other tax collectors working for him. It probably means that he was wealthier than the rest of them. It also probably means that he was a little bit more corrupt than the rest. And even when I say the word tax collector, doesn't that just have a negative connotation connected to it? Don't you grind your teeth just a little bit when I say Zacchaeus, the tax collector. There's that little bit of like, mmm, in us, isn't there? Tax collectors were hated in Jesus' day. In fact, they had their own category of sinner. You read about it all throughout the New Testament, you'll read stuff like this. There were sinners and tax collectors there. It's like this whole category of sin. We read one of those examples in Matthew chapter 9, verse 10. Jesus had gone to eat dinner at the house of Matthew, who was one of his disciples, who was a tax collector, and Matthew invited all of his tax collector buddies. And people saw this, and they're like, Jesus went out, and he's having dinner at Matthew's house, and there's sinners there and tax collectors. It's almost like, man, I really messed up, I sinned. Well, at least you're just a sinner and not a tax collector, too. I mean, it has that kind of feel to it. Tax collectors were so hated, even on top of quote-unquote sinners. Why were they hated so much? Let me give you a little biblical history here. In this time, in the Bible, the Roman government ruled everything. And the Israelites were living under the oppression of the Roman government. And so the Roman government did what every government does, right? Tax. Tax its people. And the Israelites were no different. They were, they were, you know, given taxes. You know, they're heavy taxes. You remember even Jesus said, hey, give to Caesars what is Caesars. Give to God what is God's. I mean, this is Jesus. He's saying, taxes are here. You got to do that. So they're taxed heavily. But what Rome would do is that they would, they would empower Jewish men and for them to go around to Jewish people and collect the Roman tax. So if Rome says, we require this much money every year in taxes, they would release these tax collectors like Zacchaeus with no parameters, no boundaries, no restrictions, and they were allowed to collect however much money they wanted. And as long as Rome got their peace, these tax collectors could keep the difference. Can you say open door for corruption? Can, can you, you know These tax collectors could charge whatever they wanted. It's like, Oh, you owe, I don't know, a month's worth of wages and taxes. And the tax collectors could call up, but you owe me six months of wages. They'll give they they'll give one to Rome and they'll keep five. Now, if you were living under that system, would you feel good about the guy that came and knocked at your door named Zacchaeus saying, time to pay? No, absolutely not. We would hate those guys. And if we balked at the system, if we said, I'm not doing it, I'm going to give you what is owed, then that tax collector had the authority to have you and your whole family thrown in prison. So they were forced in it. That's why you have sinners and tax collectors. They were hated. That's who Zacchaeus was. He was the chief tax collector, which means he was overseeing all of this, and and he was probably making more than everybody else. To add insult to injury, these tax collectors were looked at as traitors, because if you understand kind of how, how God's chosen people, the Israelites were set up, they were clean and unclean, and there were things you do and don't do, and if you partner up with the Gentiles, that would be an unclean, outside of God's family person, as a biblical language here in the Old Testament, it's like you were a traitor. So not only were they like my brother coming to get taxes from me and cheating me out of my hard earned money, he was partnered up with a bunch of unclean Gentiles. He's a traitor to us, his people. That's again, that's why you have sinners and you have tax collectors. You may not know this, but you know Zacchaeus' name. Do you know what it means? It means righteous one. Isn't that odd? Here you have the chief tax collector, the supervisor of the taxes, not living up to his very name. So here's what happens next in verse three. He, this is Zacchaeus, he wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. And I read that and there's this question that pops up into my mind and it's this. Why in the world would Zacchaeus want to see Jesus? The Bible does not tell us why. It doesn't tell us what his motivation was. It it doesn't say why it's important. It just says he wanted to see Jesus, and we don't know why. So all we're left to do is guess. So I'm going to give you my best guess as to why Zacchaeus wanted so badly to see who Jesus was. And my guess is based off of verse 2. It says that Zacchaeus was a wealthy man man. What that says to me is that Zacchaeus could buy anything that he wanted to buy without any restriction whatsoever. He was probably, knowing the type, sinners and tax, knowing the type, he probably did not mind flaunting his wealth in front of people. He knew it came off of of the backs of his hard-earned brothers and sisters, his own people. He didn't care. He was a scoundrel. He wanted what he wanted, and, and and he could get whatever he wanted. Now, that's my opinion. That's my take on it. But then he heard Jesus was coming. And in my opinion, Zacchaeus at the time was wrestling with what I believe a lot of people wrestle with today, and maybe even right here in this room, you are struggling with this same emotion. My guess is this. Zacchaeus had everything that he wanted, but he was not happy. He had everything that he wanted, but he was probably not happy. And here comes Jesus who has something that his money cannot buy. And I'm just wondering if deep down in his spirit, he's going, I wonder if Jesus, I can get something from him or learn something that will fill this empty hole in my heart. Why am I not happy? What am I missing? It's my opinion, of course, but I'm just wondering what else would cause him to be so compelled to see Jesus, to want to do whatever he could to draw near to where Jesus was going to be. And that also prompts another question in my mind. What compels you today to want to see Jesus? What, What compels you to, what draws you to make you want to be close to him What makes you keep coming back to God's Word? What makes you keep going to your knees in prayer and talking to your Heavenly Father? What drives you? What compels you to be a part of this community of believers? Why are you drawn to Jesus and holy things? What compels you? Now, I can tell you what compels me. This is just one of many things that compels me to want to draw near to Jesus continually, it's this. It's the knowledge that I don't have all the answers, but I know who does. In fact, the older I get, the more aware I am of just how much I don't know. But what compels me to keep coming back to God's word and keep going to my knees in prayer and to be a part of this church family, what compels me is this knowledge. that I don't have all the knowledge, but I know who has all the answers. And I love what James says in the New Testament, James chapter 4, verse 8. If you don't know this little verse, I want to introduce it to you. James says this. It's a promise that if you come near to God, he will come near to you. That if you are compelled to learn about him, the Lord will come near to you. If you're compelled to be close to him, he will come to you. And I think in some ways, this is what's happening with Zacchaeus. He's drawn to Jesus. He wants to see him. Something's pulling him. Whatever the reason it is, he wants to be near Jesus. I'm going to tell you something. Jesus came near to him. It's kind of a physical example of what James is talking about. Come near to God, he will come near to you. It is a promise. So, like I said, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly why Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, but we do know this. The reality of his situation pretty much made it impossible for him to do it. The Bible speaks of Zacchaeus as being a man of short stature. I kind of get this impression that there were people lining the streets, and Zacchaeus is behind the crowd, and he can't see over him. He can't do it. No matter how hard he tries, he he can probably try, he's probably tried to squeeze through the crowd, but I doubt that there was one person in that crowd who was like, hey, you guys, let Zacchaeus through. You know he can't see. Come on, let him get close to you. Come on. No, 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 no. They hate him. Remember, they're sinners, and then there's Zacchaeus. No, 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 nobody's going to help him. Nobody's going to make it easy for him to see Jesus. I'm going to guess that they kind of locked in tight, said, sorry, Zacchaeus, you're out of luck. And so he does the only thing that he can do. He runs up the street, finds a tree, and he climbs that tree. Now, there's two things about that that you might easily miss It was undignified in this day for Jewish men to run. And the Bible clearly says that he ran. That's what I tell my personal trainer all the time. It's undignified to run. I'm just trying to draw close to God. It's undignified. I'm kidding. I don't have a trainer. So he runs. And then he climbs a tree. For a wealthy Jewish man in Jesus' day, that would have been a very undignified thing to do. I don't want to read more into it than what's there, but there's a little bit of hint of desperation in Zacchaeus. He runs, he climbs. This would have been social no-nos for somebody like him, but he, for whatever reason, wants to see Jesus. Now, I want to show you a picture of an actual sycamore tree um, in the actual city of Jericho. Here's the picture of it. Um, This is a very famous tree, actually. Um, I've seen this tree in person when I was in Jericho. Um, They actually have a sign out in front of this tree that this is Zacchaeus' tree. There are many people who believe that this was the actual tree that Zacchaeus climbed. I don't think science is on their side because they have pretty much conclusively dated this tree Um, as an ancient tree, but not that old. But who knows? Maybe it came from the tree that Zacchaeus climbed. I'm not sure. We do know this. This is close to the area that Jesus would have walked through on that day. And this is the same kind of tree. So I show it to you just so you can have a visual of what this tree looked like. You'll you'll notice that even though it's an ancient tree and it's very old, um, it's probably not Zacchaeus' exact tree. But It has low branches like the one that Zacchaeus would have climbed. It's the exact same kind of tree. It would not have been hard for him to climb up there a few feet and get into a branch. That's what I'm trying to show you. It would have been fairly easy for him to do, and he just needed to be high enough to see over the crowd. Now, I want to share something with you that was a surprise to me when I was in the Holy Land last summer. A few days after this, we went to um, a garden, a biblical garden there in the Holy Land, and there 's this organization there that is, that is committed to preserving all of the vegetation and fruits and trees that we read about in the Bible. They grow it there in their garden, so it 's like their way of keeping the Bible alive, so when you come there and you 're like, "You see this fruit right here? This is the exact kind of fruit that Jesus would have held when he told this story. You know, it 's kind of a fascinating place. So in the middle of this garden, they have a sycamore tree. And our tour guide took us to that tree, and he's like, how many of you have heard of Zacchaeus? And he tells us the story that we're looking at today in Luke 19. And then he says this. He said, did you know that the sycamore fig tree means restoration? And I thought, I did not know that. And I made a note to myself, go look that up. Go do your Google homework, you know, the source for all facts, and look up The symbolism of a sycamore fig tree, and I was really blown away of all the work that had been done tracing the symbol. There's a lot of symbolism, and there's more miracles than you realize that surround trees like this. But in Israel, the sycamore fig tree, it also symbolizes regeneration. The people over there understand this is a regeneration tree. And regeneration refers to somebody who has been spiritually born again. I don't think it's a coincidence that Zacchaeus, the tax collector, climbed a tree that by its very nature is known for regeneration and restoration. The very tree speaks to what is about to happen in his life. And this is what happens next. Luke 19, verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot, the the spot where the tree was, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and they began to mutter. He is gone to be the guest of a sinner. The very judgmental crowd was like, hey, can you believe he's doing this? He's going to Zacchaeus' house. Can you believe it? I wonder who was more surprised, Zacchaeus or the crowd? I don't know the answer to that. I have wondered about it. I, I think about the crowd that was there just to get a glimpse of Jesus. I wonder if any of them on that day, as they were waiting for Jesus to come down the street, I wonder if any of them were thinking, I hope he waves at me. Oh, wouldn't it be cool if Jesus came over and and touched me? Or or what, do you think we're going to see a miracle today? I mean, who knows what was going through their minds. I, I don't think that people back then were all that different than people today in this sense. We all want to catch a glimpse of somebody famous. I do. Have you ever stood in a long line to get that special autograph you've been waiting for? I have. Have you ever showed up at a parade because you knew somebody was going to be in the parade and you stood there for an hour just to get a glimpse of them? I mean, I don't think we're all that different. I think Jesus had a celebrity status at this point. It is late in his ministry, three years of preaching and miracles and all those things. He had attracted a crowd. They wanted to see him. And I can just imagine the people in the crowd as they're waiting anticipation. I wonder if he's going to talk to me. I wonder if we're going to make eye contact. Wouldn't that be so cool if he singled one person out of the crowd? Wait a minute. He did. Zacchaeus? Are you telling me the one person that Jesus said, that that can't be right, he's a sinner, he's attacked, does Jesus not know who he is? Whoa, he's coming out of that tree, what's going on? I can imagine the shock that went through the crowd when Jesus stopped at the base of that tree. If we were in the crowd that day, I think it would be like Jesus stopping at that tree and looking up there saying, joy, Behar, you come down here immediately. I'm going to your house today. And us in the crowd would be like, w- 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 what's he doing? That's, that's Joy Behar. She's the one that makes fun of Christians every chance she gets on TV. She is, she, the things she says about Christians is just awful. What is Jesus doing? It would be like if we were in the crowd that day and Jesus stopped at the base of that tree and, and he looked up at that tree and he said, Bill Nye, you know, the science guy, Bill Nye, you come down here because I'm going to your house today. We're like, Whoa. Bill Nye, the atheist, the one who every time he can get in front of a camera makes fun of Christians and their belief that God created the earth in seven days. You're going to go eat with him? I mean, you put whatever name in the blank that you want to, that you would associate with a worldly anti-Christian message, and it would be that shock. That's the shock that the crowd suffered when Jesus looked up at Zacchaeus and said, hey, you, Zacchaeus, I am coming to your home today. And what I want to point out to you, which is so important, is that Jesus is doing nothing abnormal from his normal behavior. I mean, is this the same? He's just doing what he has consistently done throughout his years in ministry. He goes against the traditions and the social norms of the day. It's what I was trying to communicate last week. I'll say it again. He does not see society's labels. He just sees people. He doesn't see what everybody else sees. He's this, he's that, she's this, she's that. She was this, she's not that. all, All these labels. Jesus doesn't see any of that. He just sees people. And he looked up in that tree, and he saw a man who was lost. And the crowd stands outside of Zacchaeus' home with Jesus on the inside, and they can't believe it. They're muttering, the Bible says, to each other, he's in there with a sinner. One of my favorite authors, who I don't always agree with, but I I, I agree with a lot of things he says, and I love the way he writes, Warren Wearsby. And he says this in his commentary about this moment, and I think he nails it. Wearsby writes, though that Zacchaeus was a renegade in the eyes of the Jews, he was a precious lost sinner in the eyes of Jesus. Bingo. You know, this is the only instance in all four Gospels where Jesus invites himself to somebody's house. We read plenty of times where Jesus was invited to somebody's home, but this is the first time Jesus seems to invite himself. And it reminds me of something Jesus would later say in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 20. Maybe you're familiar with this very famous scripture. Jesus would say later, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Zacchaeus. The least likely man in town to ever get this privilege of having dinner with Jesus is that man. That Jesus is like, Zacchaeus, here I am. I'm standing at your door. You going to let me in? And Zacchaeus is like, come on in. And that moment changes his entire life there is no doubt in my mind that this moment right here is the moment that Zacchaeus later in life would look back on and say that's when it got personal that's when it got real that that's when that's when I knew that's when everything changed right right there look at verse 8 here's what happens next but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord look Lord here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now, this is, this is an incredible moment of life change right here in, 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 this, in this house. Zacchaeus is like saying, I, I am sorry, I'm, I, I'm gonna fix this. I'm gonna tell you there, a true sign of repentance is when you say, I will fix it it's one thing to say, I'm sorry. It's another thing to say, I will make it right. And so Zacchaeus says, I'm going to pay back everybody I cheated four times. This is not just some number he's pulling out of the sky. This is, you can go back and read Exodus chapter 22, which lists out under the Mosaic law, all the penalties for being a thief. And when you steal something and what you have to do to make restitution. And so the maximum punishment for this kind of thing, would to pay somebody back four times. And so Zacchaeus is like, I'm volunteering that I will pay back four times. I'm not gonna quibble about it. I am gonna pay back the most, the maximum that the law says. Now, I don't know if he knew this already or if his conversation with Jesus, this got brought up. Maybe Zacchaeus was like, Jesus, what do I gotta do? And maybe Jesus said, well, according to the law, it's four times. And Zacchaeus like, okay, I'll do it. But he's volunteered, I will pay back four times what I owe. He also says, I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor. I don't know this for a fact, but if I had to guess, by the time that that Zacchaeus paid back four times what he had stolen and given half of his wealth to the poor, he was probably wiped out financially. I'm going to guess that his checking account after this was very little. But his heart was very full Jesus says this next in verse 9 he says salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham this is Jesus' way of saying he's one of us again it's good now the people that Jesus would have said this to would have understand, understood the son of Abraham or the child of Abraham as he's part of God's family Salvation has come. He's in God's good graces again. I'm going to tell you, repentance is always the pathway to God's family. Old and New Testament. He repented, and he was going to make it right, and he was going to make a life change. And then in verse 10, Jesus says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. If you're looking for that one verse in the entire New Testament that sums up what Jesus was all about, it's Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. It's a powerful story of Zacchaeus, isn't it? This is also a powerful story of life change right from our congregation. Please watch Terry and Lynn's story.
1: So uh, Terry and I were married right out of high school. I was pregnant, and Terry was more interested in his friends and doing his own thing, and I was very depressed. We moved to Taconite Harbor and it was there that I met a wonderful Christian lady named Mary Jane. And she listened to just a very, very extremely shy, scared and depressed 31-year-old woman who was a wife and a mother of three and about ready to lose her marriage. So then about two months later, um, I was at her home and I picked up a book on her coffee table. And that was the catalyst that the Lord used to show me Christ. And I ended up on my knees giving my life to the Lord.
2: Well, like Lynn, I grew up in a non-Christian family uh, where I grew up basically was a hard drinking, hard fighting, hard working town, a mining town. I knew two Christians, and they couldn't whip their way out of a paper bag. And it, uh, it's the only two Christians I knew in, in school. And uh, so I thought they were pretty weak because they had to rely on this guy, Jesus. So um, Lynn and I were married right out of high school, and I did not live a Christian life at all. It was just the opposite. We lived in an area that, again, we wanted to move out to, of, to start over, so we moved Uh, hundred miles away to a small little community and I took a terminal manager's job there and we thought we'd start all over but it was the same thing just a different place and one day expecting to be divorced I guess and and totally my fault uh, one day I come home and and, uh, then gave me a big hug and And I was wondering, what the heck was going on? I mean, and she said she forgave me. Well, if you understood what she was forgiving, that was a big pile of stuff. And I thought two things, either she lost her mind or she meant what she said. And it was a couple months later when she went in the hospital for a particular thing and and I went to visit her, she had to stay overnight and there was Christian ladies that were there as well and when I come out of the hospital, a gal asked me, uh, are, uh, you have a beautiful Christian wife, are you a Christian? And I said 60-40, not knowing anything. And uh, so I started coming back home and I never listened to the radio because I've always been hard of hearing. And there was a radio station on, it was Lynn's car, so it had to be a Christian radio station and a preacher was preaching a gospel message, and he says, brother, you can't be a 60-40 Christian. And it just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks, and I finally realized through Lynn's testimony and a few other things that happened in our life, I thought, you know, there's gotta be a, there's gotta be a God, there's gotta be a Jesus. And I says, well, I accepted the Lord not knowing what I was accepting. I I knew I needed a savior, a forgiver of my sins. And it was that point on that Lynn and I started growing only because the Lord put good people in our lives, good Bible teaching people that loved us and that taught us. And we sucked in as much scripture as we could. I went to a Bible college for a year. I wanted to know about this Jesus that saved our lives and saved our marriage. And from that point on, the Lord has blessed us. Um, I had a job that, after a few years I was a Christian, I had a job that that uh, all of a sudden I got to be pretty important. They're flying me all over and they lure jet and then getting picked up with the limousine and all of a sudden I thought, I'm really something. And it never was anything my whole life. And I got caught up in that whole thing. And it was a mess, lost my job. And at that point, I got on my knees and I realized that I put Jesus on the shelf. And so kind of regrouped, repented. And the Lord has used me tenfold since then. And it's been an absolute blessing. And this church has been a blessing to us. The people have been great, and we have—we're uh, just blessed by having a church like this.
1: God has been so good; He's been so faithful, and we are so thankful for the new life that He has given us. And we just—we just continue on.
2: And watching Billy Graham the other day, I wept like a little like a little kid because just to see what the Lord has given him, and it's a simple message: God loves you believe in Christ, believe in what he did on the cross, and have an ever-loving, everlasting life. And that's just, just been a great, great thing.